The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Who is in charge here? Who is in charge here? What an important question. It requires us to identify authority. One of the great errors of Adam's race is that we tend to assume personal autonomy unless there is substantial evidence to the contrary. We assume that we are in charge and that we are in control and that we are the rulers of our life and our destiny. But that funhouse mirror is displaying a very distorted image of reality. And at some point, a situation will arise that will be like a sledgehammer coming to shatter that glass and reveal that we have been trusting in a facade all along. It is at that point that people start to panic and begin searching for a new ruler, a new source of strength, a source of power and authority, a new king. And we see that in our world today, that is what is taking place. When tragedy or calamity or disaster strikes, that is when people take a close look at their authority and they determine whether they are able to lead them well. Sadly, throughout history, and even in our day, governments and rulers use tragedy as an opportunity to accumulate more power and authority to themselves. Today is a day that is traditionally called Palm Sunday. It is the start of Passion Week. This is the time of year when Christians set their attention more closely on the realities of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. These precious truths are always at the core of what we do. This is why we gather, because of this gospel reality. This is what we preach Sunday after Sunday. But it is only fitting that we regularly take time out of our year and our calendar to renew our understanding of the events that took place during this most significant week in history. Last week, we learned about Samuel as Gideon preached from 1 Samuel chapter 7. Today, the bulk of our sermon is actually going to follow the very next chapter in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, but it will not end there. Today, we are going to consider how throughout the Old Testament, God was setting the stage for the true king's arrival. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to hear your word, that I have the ability to preach your word, even in this format. Lord, I ask that you would help me, your servant, to be faithfully proclaiming the truth, that you would give me holy unction and the words to say, that you would give the people who are hearing attention, that they might be able to set their minds and their focus upon your word right now. Lord, I ask for minimal distractions, that you would cause everyone to be able to zone in and to clearly think through what your word has to say. God, I ask that we would use this time where we are uh, sheltering in place, as it were, to really set our minds on your word and on Jesus. Help us to worship you and love you with all of our mind. Lord, I pray that this moment that we have together right now, that this would be beneficial, that you would be working in us to remind us that Jesus is king. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. When Samuel became old, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside 
after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Last week, we saw the successful and the righteous ministry of Samuel. However, in his later days, we see that this great man of faith made a huge mistake. Remember back to the time of Samuel when he was just a boy? And remember how Eli, the high priest, had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And these two sons, they were kind of running things in their situation, and they were not righteous. They were ungodly, and the big problem with Eli is that he did nothing to stop them. And unfortunately, in like manner, Samuel raised two ungodly children, yet he handed the reins over to them. He was allowing them to rule in various ways. Verse 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. From a human perspective, you can see exactly why the people of Israel would not want these two to be in charge. You can see exactly why they are refusing to let Joel and Abijah be their judge. But as we are going to see, there's much more going on under the hood. Verse 6 says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Before moving on, I do think it's worthwhile to pause here for a moment. The relationship that Samuel had with God has been cultivated for a lifetime. He has been communing with the Lord in prayer on a regular basis. And now, Samuel was in an incredibly uncomfortable situation. But instead of giving an answer directly to the people, instead of lashing out in disappointment or disagreement, instead he drops down to his knees in prayer. And we can learn a lot from Samuel here. God has the answers. He does. Do we actually believe that? Do we believe that God knows what he's doing? And do we believe that if we go to him, he will help us understand what we are supposed to do and how we are supposed to fit into this life? Do we really trust to go to God when our plans are obliterated or our hopes are shattered? You are not a prophet, so you are not going to hear from God in the same way that Samuel did. He will not speak to you verbally like he did to Samuel. But we do see that the pattern of the believer is to take our care to the Lord, is to go to him. And in this case, God responded by giving the people exactly what they wanted. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they have to say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Then, now, or now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Tell them what this king is going to do. It's important that you see what God is saying here. He is giving them what they want. He is saying, just let them have a king. They're begging for a king. They're pleading for a king. They're whining. Just give it to him. But please understand that this is a curse. This is not a blessing. Giving them what they want is not good for them. God is declaring, I am the one that they have rejected. I am the one that they have denied. I am the one that they have despised. I desire to rule as their king, and they have said, I want no king like you to rule over me. He says, I am the one that they have cheated on with idols. I am the one that they are seeking to replace, not you, Samuel. But don't miss the timeline here. 
he, it's very important that God lays out that this is not a new fad. This is not a new transition in the heart of the people. This rebellion has been going on for a very long time. The rejection of God as the king did not start with Samuel's sons. This was the underlying heart attitude of the nation since the time of the Exodus, according to God's word. They had been rebelling against the Lord since that time, God says, that they had been delivered out of Egypt. So God told Samuel, give them what they want, but be sure to warn them what they're getting themselves into. Look again down to verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he will appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers and he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and he will give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Let's get something straight right up front. It is not wrong for the people to desire a king. In fact, God had promised that he was going to give them a king, but God also gave strict orders for that, what that king would and would not do. And God also declared that he would send his own king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20 says it this way. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, uh, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. That is this moment in 1 Samuel 8. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return again that way. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to do to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So God is doing now what every parent who is watching has probably done with their children. He is warning Israel. He is telling Samuel, please inform them that whatever king they pick, he will not be like the king that I am going to set aside. He is not going to be a good king. He is going to do the opposite of all of the things that he is told to do back in the book of Deuteronomy. He's warning Israel like this. Last summer, we attempted to grow some vegetables in our backyard. We attempted to have a garden. And 
we had some mixed success, but we did have a few jalapenos that grew, and I personally really enjoy jalapenos, and my son, Ace, really wanted to try one. And of course he did. We grew them ourselves. And I told him, Ace, I know that it's beautiful. It's like half green and kind of a little bit orange and a little bit red. It looks really good, but it's very hot. It's not hot for me because I like hot things and I've eaten a lot of hot things, but it would be very hot for you. And I don't think you're going to like the results. But of course he really wanted to try it. And you might not agree with my parenting, but I allowed him to have a small taste just so he would know what a jalapeno really is all about. It's an important step in growing up, I think, in being a boy. And, of course, he wanted it, and then as soon as he got it, he realized he didn't really want what he thought he wanted. He was getting something different than he expected. He thought it was going to be this incredible flavor, which it is, but not for him. Now, we want what we want because we don't really believe in consequences. Adam and Eve, they took the fruit because they believed it would make them happy, and they didn't really believe that they were going to die. If they really believed that, they would not have eaten the fruit in that moment. And you might look at something and be tempted and think there's no greater mis uh, you might be tempted to think there's no greater misjudgment in all of history than Adam and Eve. Of course, they made the greatest mistake. That was the biggest miscalculation in the history of the world. But the reality is that every single time you sin, you are doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did. You are misjudging reality at the same level that they are. You are imagining that God doesn't take sin seriously, that the judge of the universe does not punish the guilty. You are imagining that this present pleasure that comes from the sin that you are experiencing will outweigh the judgment that is promised on the other side. For Adam and Eve, there was a promise of death. If you eat that, you will die. For Israel, there was a promise that if you select this king, if you choose to set up this man over yourself, then you are eventually going to need to be delivered from the very same throne that you are building around you right now. Ace, if you eat that pepper, it's going to burn your tongue. And you, listener, you who are watching right now through your computer screen or your phone, if you pursue that sin in your life, it will bring about one of two possible things, and neither one of them are comfortable. Either you will be punished by God, or you will be disciplined by God. And there is an important distinction between the two. God always punishes the unbeliever. He always punishes the unbeliever. Punishment is punitive. It is harsh. It's for those who are outside of Christ. If somebody is an enemy of God, they will experience the full, unvented fury of God's wrath forever in hell. Punishment is reserved for God's enemies. But for those who have believed in Jesus, for those who have the forgiveness of their sins, there is never going to be any punishment. Rather, there is only the gracious hand of correction that God calls discipline. This is done by a loving father who cares for the good of his children. Consider the words of Hebrews 12 verse 6, which says, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. And if you jump down just a little bit more, down to verse 11, you will read, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines his children in a variety of ways. Christian, let me repeat this because this is very important for you to understand. God will never punish you because of your sin. Why not? 
because your punishment was already taken by Jesus on the cross. Every ounce of suffering that you deserve because of those things that you have done or those things that you have thought, Jesus paid for those by dying and shedding his own blood on that cross for you. The punishment was poured out on him. So God will not punish the believer. God is not pleased with you, though, when you continue wallowing in filth. He's not going to punish you, but he is going to attempt to clean you up with loving measures of discipline. And those forms of discipline are not usually comfortable. Now, although we're not going to explore the implications thoroughly today, I do think it's worth noting that you should clarify your thinking a little bit about parenting when you consider these realities. You love your children. You are not there to punish them. You are there to discipline them. You are there to train them through your correction, your loving, but sometimes painful correction, so that they might result in a change of heart and mind in your children. Likewise, thinking through this can help you think about church polity. What you are thinking about when you discipline a member of the church matters. Your motive matters. It is not the goal of the church to seek to pridefully look down on others or to present ourselves as better. The goal of church discipline is to result in repentance and restoration. That's why we do it. So when we consider the idea of the difference here between punishment and discipline, what we are seeing is that it has long-ranging implications. So we have punishment and we have discipline, but there's another reality that's mixed in and it kind of fits into both in some ways. And that is the word consequence. Every single action has a reaction. There is absolutely nothing that you have done or nothing you ever will do that is completely neutral. Everything you do, even if it's standing completely still, will affect what happens in the next moment. You have action which results in reaction. Every, everything results in something. And there are earthly consequences for the things that you do. So Ace, if you eat that pepper, it is going to burn you. If you eat that pepper, it is going to hurt your tongue. Adam, the result of the thing you are doing, eating that fruit, is going to be death. There are physical consequences to what you are doing. Israel, there are going to be consequences for making this king. If you put him in charge of you, he's going to basically turn you into free labor and even slavery, and you're going to hate it. You do not want to do this. There are consequences for what you do. God always punishes his enemies. He always disciplines his children, but God has also designed the world to operate with certain principles. For example, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27 puts it this way. He says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back onto him who starts it rolling. The idea here is if you are plotting against somebody, you're actually going to eventually hurt yourself. There are principles in this world that exist for a reason, and that is that every action has a reaction. There is always a consequence to what you do. So allow me to offer an extreme example. Let's imagine for a moment that there is a murderer, a mass murderer, a, a person who has taken a weapon into a school and performed a mass shooting, and this person is now captured by the police, he is taken before a judge, and he is condemned and sentenced to life in prison, maybe more. And as he is taken there, one of the police officers in the squad car with him shares the gospel with this man. 
And that man hears the word of God, he hears the gospel, and he believes, and he repents. He acknowledges his sin, and he falls before the face of God and says, God, I desperately need your forgiveness. Will God forgive him? Of course God will forgive him. Will the American government and the judicial system and the public forgive him? Well, it doesn't matter what's in their heart. Justice demands this man stays in prison. This man is not allowed to go free just because he has now had a change of perspective or even because this man has now been cleansed of his sin before God. There are consequences to our actions. And in that man's case, even if he has been forgiven by God, he does still need to send, uh, spend his life in prison because of the sin that he committed. There are consequences to what we do. And it is important to understand that consequences in this life can be part of God's punishment of the wicked, and it can be part of God's discipline for the righteous or for his children. And it's important for us to understand that the consequences of our sin are designed to get our attention that sin is never good, it is never profitable, it is never wise, and it never results in our benefit. It is always negative, and it always results in what is negative, either in the short run or definitely, at least, in the long run. I know in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, when it speaks about Moses, it does say that there are passing pleasures in sin. But it says that Moses chose rather than those passing pleasures, he chose Christ. So I think it's important for us to say that, yeah, I might not feel those consequences immediately. These people who wanted a king didn't feel the consequences immediately. And maybe not even in their lifetimes. But eventually, their children and their grandchildren, and throughout the course of the history of Israel, they felt the consequences of this moment. They felt the consequences of this sin. I want you to understand that your sin is far-reaching. The things that you do today matter. And the things that you do can affect all of the people who will come after you. They affect all of the people in your family. They affect all of the people in your church. You might say, well, we can't even gather in the church right now. How will it affect them? If there is a little leaven in the lump, it leavens the whole dough. Please understand that your sin has consequences that hurt more people than just you. Asaph's burning tongue was not a punishment. Asaph's burning tongue was not discipline. It was the natural consequence of his own decision. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel made a decision. They determined that they would have a king, and just like Ace, they thought they could handle it. And they thought they could take the consequences of that pepper, and they thought they could take the warnings, and they said, that's not really going to happen. We'll figure a way out of it. I know that God's saying this is what's going to take place, but I think if we just work really hard, and maybe we put some good authority figures in place around that king, maybe we'll have some accountability, maybe there will be more responsibility. I don't think this is really going to happen. Verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no! There shall be a king over us that we also might be like the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Samuel did just that. He gave them a king. He gave them Saul. And Saul failed. What did these people say they want? They want a king who is going to come out and fight their battles. They want somebody who is going to go and stand before them and who is going to represent them before their enemies. They want a king who is going to keep them safe. 
and they got Saul. They got Saul. Saul, what does he do when the Philistines attack Israel? What does this king, this man who is a head taller than everyone else in the land, what does he do? Does he guard the nation? Does he go out to fight one-on-one -on -one with this Goliath? No. He does not take his responsibility to guard the people. Rather, he sits in his tent and he offers big rewards to anybody that would come and would fight this Goliath. He says, you won't have to pay taxes anymore. Oh, wow. That means everyone else has to pay more. You're actually hurting the other people because you're abdicating your responsibility, Saul. He says, you can have my own daughter. He is putting his own daughter at stake here. Who knows what kind of man it is that's going to fight Goliath. He is in the process of abdicating his own responsibility, hurting other people, and he says, I will not go fight. And that war was not ended by the king of Israel. He did not go out there and fight that battle. But the war was ended by the king that God selected. The war ended when a shepherd boy, a shepherd who had been set apart by God, arose and stood between Goliath and the nation. This boy who had secretly been anointed by Samuel, he declared, this battle belongs to the Lord. And even as a young man, David fought for the people and he won. He was already acting as a king. He was serving God by defending the glory of God and the people of God against the enemies of God. But David would not succeed as the righteous king either. His failures are epic. The things that he did are incredible. The amount of sin in this man's life has been told as much or more than his failures. He has proven to take the authority that was vested in him, and instead of using it for the glory of God, he abused that power and he used it to advance the cause of his own lust and his own pride. And like Samuel, David also was not a good father. He did not discipline his sons. He did not take care to lead them in the ways of the Lord. And eventually, David was even forced to leave his throne in Jerusalem and to leave because his own son, Absalom, determined to make himself king. David was forced to flee. And when he reached the Mount of Olives, he was given a donkey to ride by Mephibosheth. And David, the great king of Israel, rode on a donkey down the Mount of Olives away from Jerusalem so that he might escape and preserve his life. And you probably know the end of that story. David was restored and his enemy was hanged in a tree and was killed there. Now flash forward about a thousand years. God's true anointed one has come and he has been revealing himself to be the son of God how? By doing these mighty works that no one else could do. By revealing himself through his preaching and his authority over demons and disease and even death itself. And the people looked at him and said, that's my king. That's the kind of king I want. I want a king who can do those things. I want a king who can multiply food so I don't have to work anymore. I want a king who, when I'm sick, if I get COVID, I can just go to that guy and he will make me feel better and protect my physical body. I want somebody who can come into a nation filled with demons and send them out. I want a king like that. And more so, they're saying, I want a king who will come in and he will look at those Roman governors and he will fight them to the death if necessary to remove their thumb from our country. I want somebody who will boot out those Roman overlords and return Israel to the prominence that it had during the reign of Solomon. I want to be great in this world. And that is why I want a king like that. And that's why we see this amazing scene in Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 11, which says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, 
to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on their cloaks uh, and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them onto the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. When the people saw Jesus, they began rejoicing because they thought that the king that they had always wanted had finally arrived. And this king did not ride a donkey away from Jerusalem in the face of death. No, rather, he took this donkey and rode directly into it. And it was not the king's enemy that was going to be hung onto a tree, but it was Jesus himself who would die in just a few days. Jesus is the son of David. He is the one to whom we should sing Hosanna. He is the greater David, and he is called both the root and the branch of David in the Bible. Do you understand that he is the root, meaning that comes that he comes beforehand. He is the originator of David. He precedes David, but he is also the branch. He comes from the line, the biological offspring of David. He was pure and righteous and perfect, unlike David. He did not abuse his power. He did not use his position of authority to get his way. Rather, he humbled himself. You remember when Jesus was being tempted by the devil? Do you remember how he had opportunity to gain all this power by circumventing the cross? Satan says, all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours if you just bow down to me. I think David would have taken that deal. And Jesus refused. Jesus stood fast. And Jesus remained perfect and sinless and holy. And Jesus remained humble. This is the kind of king that we need. But the praises of the people were short-lived. They're going to prove over the course of the week that they were doing the same thing that the people were doing in 1 Samuel 8. They were trying to get a king of their own making to do their bidding, to fight in the way that they wanted the king to fight. Here's a question that you need to answer. The question that after we go through these texts in the Bible that you need to, to respond with in your own heart is the question of why is it that you sing? Why is it that you say Hosanna? Why is it that you rejoice in the Lord? Why is it that you are declaring that he is your king? Is it just lip service? Or are you actually willing to submit your life fully to God? Are you willing to bow the knee to Jesus and recognize that he has full reign and authority over your life? There are many ways, are many people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, have I not done all of these things? And there are many who will sing hallelujah and hosanna. And there are many who will attend church. There are many who will live moral lives. There are many who will give generously to those in need. But when Jesus steps on someone's toes, and when he demands something from them, when he says, you must stop doing these things that you were doing, or you must begin doing this thing that you are not doing, or you must leave this place of comfort, or you must, and fill in the blank with anything from the word of God, and it hurts their comfort. 
That is when you determine whether or not this man really is their king. What if somebody holds in their grip what Jesus says, that is mine? And they say, no, this belongs to me, Jesus. This is my kingdom over here. Everything on this side of the line is my domain. You just stay over there in your kingdom, Jesus. No, Jesus is king, and he is worthy of full surrender. If you are not a Christian and you are watching this feed, first of all, thank you for sticking around this long. I'm thankful that you're here. You need to understand that Jesus, the perfect Holy Son of God, lived a perfect life, and he died. He did not deserve to die, but he died on a cross for sinners like you and me. And he did that so that he might purchase the salvation of all who would ever come to him. And if you are here and you are feeling that conviction that you have rejected him as your king and you have said, I will not have him to rule over me, then you need to bow the knee to Jesus right now. Believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. Believe that he reigns right now as your king and worship him by repenting of your sin and turning away from those wicked ways, and recognizing that you need him to rule over you from this day forward and forevermore. Jesus is the king. He requires full surrender. And if you are a Christian today, but you're holding on to something, if you're holding on to a particular area of sin, something that you just have as your pet vice, and you just don't want to let it go, whatever that might be, that is your arrogant heart saying, God, you can be king of any area except this. And God disciplines those he loves. I am graciously telling you right now, believer, you do not want God to discipline you. You do not want to feel that corrective hand of God. You would rather hear it now and turn and repent than experience the consequences that sin necessarily brings with it. So please turn and repent and believe with your heart that his way is better than yours and worship him in all that you do. This Friday night, we're actually going to hear the next part in this story. There's going to be another worship service right here on our website that is going to be for Good Friday and is going to focus specifically in on the crucifixion, the death of this king. And we're going to see how Jesus is even king in the way that he laid down his life. And then next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we are going to see him as king in his resurrection and how that can bring for us newness of life. Thank you for watching. Let's pray. God, we bless your name. We thank you that you are good and loving and righteous and that you are a king different than any other. I thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to rule and to reign in a very different way than Saul and a very different way than David, that he is righteous beyond measure and that he is not lorded over us in such a way as to harm us or to punish us. But for those who are his children, he graciously leads us with his righteous hand and brings us into himself closer and closer that we might know him and be part of your family forever. God, I thank you that we have union with him because of the great mercy that came to us at the cross. Help us, Lord, now to follow Jesus and trust him with all of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.